Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Antietam is not forgotten. It was not the turning point, not the turning point of the Civil War, and its story in general terms is not untold. Those are the words of D. Scott Hartwig, our guest tonight. But even though others have written about it, Scott has chosen to commit nearly 1,000 pages to his account titled, I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign. We'll find out what merits this deep dive into the Battle of Antietam when we talk with D. Scott Hartwig tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building, as we just about always do these days, uh, but not speaking for East Carolina University, where I'm, where the building is located and where the elevator doesn't work today, uh, speaking only for myself, and my guest likewise will speak only for himself, as we always do. Well, this has been a tragic week at East Carolina University. Uh, Brett Hood, a graduate student in the history program, in the maritime studies program within the history department, and my teaching assistant this uh, semester, uh, passed away sometime last weekend. I just learned of this last night uh, and am still trying to process this information. those of us, uh, you and I, who read a lot about the Civil War, we read about death all day. 750,000 in four years, just a number. Tonight we'll be talking about the Battle of Antietam 
the bloodiest day in American history uh, just rolls off the tongue. We get used to it. Uh, you've all read Sherman's quote. Uh, I think it's a letter to his wife. He says, I begin to regard the death and mangling of a couple thousand men as a small affair, a kind of morning dash. And it may be well that we become so hardened. Well, of course, you and I become hardened. We become used to reading about it. We're just reading. Uh, Sherman was used to actually seeing it happen, making it happen. We don't do that. Uh, we don't face the reality of such losses, uh, at least not not on that scale and not even individually very often, which, uh, of course, is fortunate. Uh, Drew Gilpin Faust in her book, the, This Republic of Suffering, makes the point that we today in the modern world we don't see death as often as people did in the 19th century if you're an older adult like i am you may have seen the end of life of one or both of your parents but the end of a long and full life isn't a shock and it can even be a blessing in some circumstances the sudden and unexpected end of a young and promising life is something very different uh, to those of you who've experienced that kind of loss, my heart goes out to you with new understanding. Uh, Brett Hood only worked for me for a month. We hadn't yet developed a, a close personal relationship. But even so, I feel thrown off balance by this loss. I can't begin to imagine how much worse it must be for his family. So I'm planning to take time to send an extra email to my grown children who are not at home anymore. Uh, you may want to do the same or give an extra hug to those who are home. Or if you're a young person uh, on the other end of the equation, look out for your friends, take care of yourself. Be sure bad things don't happen uh, that you can prevent. And uh, for all of us who study the Civil War, I guess we can all take the occasional pause to remember that these names and statistics on the pages we enjoy reading about were real people uh, whose losses were, were keenly felt by other real people. And I will say the book uh, we'll be talking about tonight uh, certainly helps do that. It's very sensitive and uh, uh, treats with, with appropriate dignity and importance the, the individual soldiers who fought at Antietam. Uh, so we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. Before we get there, uh, the usual reminder uh, that you can find out who we'll be talking with next week and the week after that at impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps that website up to date. He does the same with the Facebook page. Next week, Manoa Uffelman will be joining us to talk about several of her books, the most recent of which is called The Civil War Letters of Sarah Kennedy, Life Under Occupation in the Upper South. And then we'll move to the month of October, October 2023. Uh, on the 4th, Paul Hodnafield has written about the 8th Minnesota. The book is called Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. No live show on October 11th, I'll be joining, hopefully, some of you on This Hallowed Ground, touring with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Then on the 18th, we'll come back. Gene Harmon will be our guest. He is a public historian with a company called Inheriting Heritage, LLC. 
And we'll finish the month of October with Judith Sumner. Uh, her book is called Plants in the Civil War, A Botanical History. You think you've read everything there is about the Civil War. Hmm? What about plants? That's what we're going to talk about at the end of October. Tonight, though, we're talking about a subject you have read something about, almost certainly. Uh, I, I've read a fair amount about it, but maybe not on this scale. Uh, the book is called I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign. And it's written by D. Scott Hartwig, who joins us tonight. Scott, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Ah, welcome to the show. Um, it's good to be here. Let me start by just checking up on a, a current event. Uh, I saw a note from the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College that you would be uh, leading a tour organized by them or sign, signing up through them the, uh, this coming Saturday, September 23 of yes. 2023. Is that still on? Yeah, that's still on, uh, despite of what I, I expected would probably happen, which is some sort of a tropical storm <laughs> moving up the <laughs> East Coast. <laughs> so it might be a little soggy for part of it. But yeah, we're we are, uh, good to go for Saturday. And is, is that still open? Can people contact CWI and get a seat? Or uh... I think it is full, but uh, I, if someone was interested, I would still contact CWI because there's always the chance that somebody, if it is full, somebody cancels. Sounds good. So, listeners, if you're interested in hearing uh, from the cannon's mouth, not just tonight, but live in person, you can meet our guest and tour the battlefield this Saturday, September 23rd. So, Scott, let, let's start with you and, and your background. Uh, before writing this book or its predecessor, Volume 1 of this Maryland campaign series, uh, uh, talk about your background in Civil War studies. Well, I went to the University of Wyoming for my undergraduate, and uh, I took three courses, nine credit hours from uh, E.B. Long, who uh, was and still remains to me to this day the most knowledgeable person about all facets of the Civil War that I ever met. And uh, a close second would be Ed Bars. But right. um, E.B. Long was a really amazing person. I learned a great deal from him. And... Um, he kind of kindled my interest, got a very strong interest in wanting to work outdoors, um, and I decided I really would like to work for the National Park Service. And I thought, wow, what a great thing I could combine my interest in working outdoors in the national parks with Civil War history. So I was lucky enough to get hired as a seasonal at Gettysburg in 1979, and then that year Mamie Eisenhower passed away, and the next year... They opened Eisenhower National Historic Site. I got hired to work as a permanent park ranger out there. And then a year later, I was able to transfer back to Gettysburg. And then um, I spent my entire career at Gettysburg, 34 years in the Park Service. And it was, it was uh, in some respects, like multiple different careers because I had different sorts of jobs when I was there. And we did a lot of very interesting and exciting things through the years that kept me constantly engaged. It was, um, if you're interested in doing public history, mm. there's not a better park that you could possibly think of because the people who arrive there are hungry to 
understand what happened there and to walk the ground and to, to hear the story. And um, it just was every day was really an interesting day. I mean, there's no question you have a lot of frustration <laughs> sometimes, uh, but um, it was just a great career. I mean, it was a great place to work. It was like a dream job. Uh, that's why I used to always get extremely annoyed with anybody who worked there who complained about their job and didn't like this and didn't like that. I thought, you know, you should kiss the ground that you walk on with this job because it is, it's really a great job to have if you're interested in history and teaching history to people. So I spent um, 34 years in the uh, National Park Service. I ended up as a supervisory historian uh, at Gettysburg. And what that meant was I was uh, not sitting there looking through books all the time. I spent a great deal of my time writing work schedules, which were unbelievably tedious and doing right. payroll and payroll, that sort of administrative stuff. But I was responsible for all the public history that we did in the park. So interpretive programming and educational programming that we that we did at the park. And we did some really exciting things in education. It's still at Gettysburg is growing. It's a great program there. Um, and um, so that was that was the the heart of my job at Gettysburg was to to do the public history at the park. I retired so, in uh, 2014, mm -hmm. and that gave me the opportunity then to really work full time on. I dread the thought of the place because it had taken me it had taken me about 20 years to write the um, the first book to Antietam Creek, and I was mm -hmm. you know I was raising kids and all sorts of things going on, really busy at work. So that took a long, long time, but I was able to get this this next one done a lot faster. Well, the the obvious question comes up if with your career at Gettysburg was, did you feel a sense of uh, uh, betraying of, of of cheating on your your park by writing about Antietam? No, actually, um, because you're working for the federal government, you have to be very careful about writing a book for publication about the park that you work at because ah. it's seen by some people as you are using a public job for personal mm. profit. So it, it's not impossible for someone to do it, but you do have to mm -hmm. be very careful about it. But the other part of it was um, I dealt with Gettysburg all the time, constantly. And um, when I first embarked on this project, the Battle of Antietam, this was before, right before Stephen Sears came out with his book, Landscape Turned Red. There right. were only two books, really, on the Battle of Antietam. There was A Gleam of Bayonets by Jim Murfin, which was 1962. Mm -hmm. And there was Francis Palfrey, the Antietam in Fredericksburg. Palfrey was in the Battle of Antietam and was wounded mm -hmm. in the battle. That was 1887, I think. So Antietam had really very little written about it. And I had always been fascinated with Antietam for two reasons. One, Bruce Catton's Mr. Lincoln's Army, his description of the Battle of Antietam, I never forgot it. It was just <clears throat> brilliantly done. And then secondly, my dad and I uh, took a trip down there once, probably in the 1970s. And um, it's just a very evocative place. So I never forgot those things about it. So it was a combination of my memory of what I knew about Antietam and also the fact that there hadn't been very much written about Antietam compared to Gettysburg that kind of pushed me into this project. 
Well, Antietam certainly is an evocative place. I, it was my formative Civil War experience as well when I was, I think, 10 years old visiting that battlefield. Uh, and, and the first one I went to and the one that, that set the hook that brings us to this conversation today. Um, you, In your book, you frequently mention uh, Carmen's work, which, which you clearly have a high regard for. Um, does that count as, as something in the the bibliography along with Murfin and Palfrey? Yeah, Carmen, well, there's actually two people that I that I think really need to be called out, and that's Ezra Carmen and John Gould. Mm-hmm. Ezra Carmen was the colonel of the 13th New Jersey in the Battle of Antietam. In fact, he served throughout the entire Civil War. And after the war in the late 19th century, he became the government historian of Antietam. And his job was to mark the battlefield with tablets that told what every uh, brigade, division, uh, corps, wing, battery, everybody did in the battle. And also to prepare very detailed maps that were kind of like hour by hour maps of the battle. And Carmen was a he was a prolific letter writer. He wrote to all sorts of uh, veterans, Union and Confederate to uh, gather information about this and all of his, well, not all of it, but much of his correspondence that he received from these veterans survived in a collection called the Antietam Studies in the National Archives or the Ezra Carmen Papers up in New York. I'm going to step in just for a minute because we have to take a short break. Uh, I want to hear more about Ezra Carmen and John Gould, and we'll learn about them as well as the uh, battle itself which is the subject of the book, I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign. It's written by our guest tonight, D. Scott Hartwig. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with D. Scott Hartwig, author of I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam, and the End of the Maryland Campaign. We were talking at the end of the first segment about people who've, who helped inspire this book uh, and whose source work was, was instrumental. And we were discussing Ezra Carman, uh, who, whose papers uh, form one of the great narratives of the battle. Uh, tell us more about Ezra Carman. Yes, the other thing that Carmen did is he wrote a, a manuscript which was 1,500 pages about the Maryland campaign of 1862. It's, it's a, a tremendous resource. And uh, some of the stories that he told in the course of that were, well, much of everything that informed it was from what he had received from veterans and also what he knew from, uh, had, had read in the official records of the War of the Rebellion. And from his own personal experiences, remember, he's, he has been in the battle. He never published his manuscript. It was uh, subsequently published by two different uh, publishing houses. The most recent is Tom Clemens, and mm-hmm. that is the Maryland, it's called The Maryland Campaign. It was published by Savas Beatty Publishing. Uh, Clemens did a phenomenal job of annotating the, it's a tremendous resource. It's in three volumes. Mm-hmm. So that Carmen's work is available now, but all of the letters that he received from veterans, um, they are actually going to be published by Tom Clemens in the near future. But they're a phenomenal resource because one of the things about Carmen, when he's corresponding with veterans, he's a veteran himself, and he had very specific vet questions for the veterans of what he wanted him them to tell him. So he wasn't just writing them, say, give me your recollections of the Battle of Antietam. He would have got all sorts of things. He knew he had to be very specific. And he also knew from his own experiences when someone was telling tall tales or had a bad memory or whatever, and he could discount those. In fact, he would do that sometimes. He worked very closely with John Gould. And John Gould and the Battle of Antietam was the adjutant of the 10th Maine Infantry. And he had helped carry uh, Joseph Mansfield, who was the commander of the Union 12th Army Corps, who was mortally wounded in front of the 10th Maine. Uh, Gould had helped carry Mansfield from the field and to an ambulance. And after the war, Gould wrote a, a number of uh, pieces contemporaneous to the battle about Mansfield's death and what he witnessed. And he wrote to Mansfield's uh, widow, etc. But anyway, about 20-some years after the war, 25 years maybe after Antietam, he wrote an article in the National Tribune about the death of Mansfield. And he got this response from some veterans who were in another regiment, the 125th Pennsylvania, and they said, you're, you're full of hooey. He was shot in front of us. We carried him off the field. We know we did. You don't know what you're talking about. And then some other veterans wrote in, and they're like, no, 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 he was shot over in front of us. So finally, Gould was like, well, well, okay, wait a second. He, he said, he wrote one really funny thing to Ezra Carmen. He says, sometimes I wonder if I was even in this battle anymore <laughs> because mm-hmm. they, all these people's memories were different. So anyway, what Gould did is he said, okay, okay, let, let's find out what did happen. So he started soliciting correspondence or letters from veterans of the 10th Maine, the 125th Pennsylvania, and then it began to grow. And it grew till every unit that fought in the East Woods in the cornfield, Union and Confederate, were included in his correspondence. And the way he would get some of these people, like let's say he wants to get, he doesn't know anybody who was in the 4th Alabama Infantry. 
Mm-hmm. Well, he knew where he knew where the Fourth Alabama was raised, so he would send a letter, a circular letter, to the postmaster in this you know county seat, and he would say, "Please circulate this to any veterans of the Fourth Alabama Infantry." And it was amazing the responses he got, and um, because again he was a veteran, these Union and Confederate veterans were very very honest with him very honest about their leaders, about things that had happened to them. And Gould would share much of his correspondence with Carmen. So they worked together with one another. Um, So I consider the Gould papers, which are at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and the Carmen collection to be the the, really the centerpiece of any research or writing that you're going to do on the Battle of Antietam. Now, there's a lot of other source material out there. There's a lot of diaries, letters, correspondence, um, that sort of material. Newspapers are another great source. But the foundation, really, in a lot of ways, is is the work that Gould and Carmen did. Now, Gould is um, specific to one area of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Even though his work was so respected, he had veterans from other parts of the battlefield just writing to him to tell him what happened. <laughs> because <laughs> some of these Confederates, it was really interesting to me, some of these Confederates... Um, became great friends with him. And he, Gould had had a very bad experience in the South after the Civil War. He tried to make a living down there. Uh, he did not like the South very much, the, the way the South was, what was going on in the South, um, in, particularly in, in terms of the treatment of the freed people. And mm-hmm. uh, he'd moved back up north. But he was just a very um, easy person to talk to. He just wanted to get at the truth. And many of these Confederate soldiers, these Confederate veterans, respected that. I remember one who wrote him, he says, you know, 25 years ago, I would have shot you dead. But now, you know, I I feel uh, I can consider you a friend. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, it's pretty, it was really, the, the correspondence was really, really fascinating. Well, you, you make a, a offhand remark near the beginning of the book about that, that the the angry partisans of today could take a lesson from these Civil War veterans who uh, learned to put aside their, their rancor eventually. Well, they, they were, I mean, the one I think of is William Robbins. He he was the, uh, the captain who took command of the 4th Alabama because their senior captain was wounded. So Robbins took command. He fights in the East Woods. He's a really, really good soldier. Uh, he fights through the entire war, surrenders, I think he surrendered at Appomattox. And after the war, uh, he, he became an attorney and he eventually became one of the commissioners at Gettysburg National Military Park. Mm-hmm. And he kept a journal. It's a fantastic journal. He's really funny. He's a really hard worker. He wrote all, if you go to Gettysburg, when you go on the Confederate side of the battlefield, he wrote all the tablets, almost all of them. There are, okay. there are a couple that another guy wrote. He wrote almost all the tablets. Anyway, Gould writes to uh, Robbins and is asking Robbins about his memories of the fighting in the East Woods. Now, a thing to keep in mind here is that Robbins' brother was killed in the East Woods. And there's a very good chance his brother was killed by the 10th Maine, Gould's regiment. So Gould writes to Carmen. Carmen writes him back, or Robbins writes him back, or Gould writes to Robbins, not Carmen, and Robbins mm-hmm. writes him back, and Robbins says, you know, I haven't thought of the Battle of Antietam in, I forget what it was, 28 years, 30 years, it was a long time, and he said, uh, your letter just 
brought back all these memories. And he proceeds to write a 17-page, extremely detailed letter, and then he writes a whole bunch more letters. To make a long story short, not only do they become friends, um, mm. Robbins is inviting Gould to his daughter's wedding. Gould is inviting Robbins to things. They get together sometimes on the Antietam battlefield. And it was just remarkable the way Robbins viewed the war is that that was war. That's what happened in war. His brother died. And Gould and the 10th Maine were doing what they were supposed to do as soldiers. And Robbins was not going to carry that forward into the post-war years. He just wasn't going to do it. And I, I found a lot of soldiers who were like that in this correspondence. They, they had seen what the reality of war was, and they did not want that again. And they put their rancor aside and it tended to be the people who hadn't had those sorts of experiences that were the loudest voices in mm -hmm. trying to continue agitation against both sides. And I, and I think you see some of that going on, or you see a lot of it going on today. Sure. Well, the idea of seeing what actually happens, your account is very much at the uh, the individual soldier's level. You have a lot to say about officers uh, up to the Corps and up to the Army level as, as far as decisions they make, but your focus is on the uh, the, the ground-level view. So we, we hear from individuals, obviously taken from the letters you talked about. So, so let me ask you this question, because this comes up when people write at that level. Um, some books I find... I start getting queasy reading, not not because I have a weak stomach, but I, I get concerned that the author is is enjoying uh, what I will call wound pornography too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you your book uses describes some very terrible things happening to individuals. Did that was that a concern of yours, and how did you address it? Yeah, I think you have to be very concerned about that because there's a lot of uh, war writing, not just the Civil War, that falls right. into that category. That you're acting like war is horrible, but in some ways you're trying to glorify the event. What I mm -hmm. wanted to do with this is to make the reader feel the Battle of Antietam as close as we could to the way it had been experienced, not just by the soldiers, mm -hmm. but by everyone involved. So, you know, when you get into the later chapters, we look at people on the home front who mm -hmm. lose their husband or their son or whatever in the, in the battle. We look at people who are living in Sharpsburg and on the farms and, and the impact upon them. I wanted people to feel that impact, that reality, and not to sanitize it so that it becomes a chess match of units moving around in the field that you have to describe units moving around in the field, but then you need to go down into, well, who are the people that make up those units? What is their experience? What, and also, what do we learn? Because we never learn anything when, um, when people, uh, what I call, promote memory rather than history. So we, mm -hmm. we want to elevate all veterans need to be venerated. Well, mm -hmm. I'm not so sure I agree with that. I, I 
my son served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a tank platoon commander and he was a scout platoon leader. So he was in danger a lot of the time. And I fully understand what veterans went through in those conflicts and conflicts before that. But we need to understand veterans and you can respect what they've done. But there are veterans and there are some in this book who do things that we really don't respect. And that's history to me, is telling, is telling the story critically and honestly. Uh, like I, I always think of this one fellow, Hugh Perkins in the 7th Wisconsin. I think he was a really good soldier, uh, but he's writing about an incident where they came up behind the Confederates who were on the Hagerstown Pike. And the Confederates didn't know they were there. And Perkins is writing to a friend after the battle. And you can tell uh, he's just overjoyed. They got the Rebs right behind them, and they're picking them off. And he writes about how he said that some of them, like, as they were trying to get away, would throw up their hands. He says, but we wasn't in for that. Mm. We plugged every one of them. Well, they didn't plug every one of them. But they, they, the point he was making is that they weren't interested in trying to take prisoners because they probably figured these guys are just pretending that they want to surrender and we'll stop firing and then they're going to run away because they were far enough away that you couldn't run out and grab them. But the, mm -hmm. the point of it was that is interesting in trying to remember this is we always want to think, you know, this was a brother's war. People weren't different. They were different than what they were and say Korea or Vietnam or World War II. And they were in some respects, but in other respects, they weren't any different. Because when you put yourself in Hugh Perkins' shoes, uh, three nights before, on September the 14th, his regiment took over 150 casualties fighting the Confederates, and they got hit on their flank and in their rear unexpectedly by the Confederates. So when the shoe was on the other foot, Perkins and his comrades had no sympathy whatsoever. And the point I try to make in the book is that that is the war that these men experienced. That it, it's it. We want to make it something that it may, may not have been. And I want to remind people that Perkins' experience isn't the experience that everybody has. Maybe it's not even typical, but it happens. And it's something you should confront and understand to understand what these battles, what and not just Antietam. Mm -hmm. but any battle of the Civil War is really like for the participants. Yeah, that that theme does appear throughout the book. I, you had a description where uh, some Confederate soldiers are, are begging for clemency and a Union soldier writes, they think we're savages, like we're going to kill them. We're not going to do that. And then a random shell kills a beloved officer. Yeah. And the Union, the Union soldiers go berserk like that just that's just not right. And they look. They would have killed those prisoners if they'd still been with them. Uh, yeah, they, they were so. So yeah, the, 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 they're human. They're they're no different. Yeah, um, they are. And certain incidents uh, can push them over the edge. And like in that incident you're describing, which is down mm -hmm. near the Roarback Bridge or what they call the right. Bridge, um, it it also had to do with you know soldiers will obey their officers up to a certain point. When they get pushed past a certain point, they take matters into their own hands. And up to that point, their officers have been able to control them. But after that beloved officer gets killed and the soldiers felt that that was somehow like 
cheating in a way the way he was killed by an artillery round. Um, and it's probably more than that. It's that they, they, they've taken a lot of casualties taking the bridge and they were probably angry about that. And they were under control up to a point. But then there comes that point that they get pushed beyond that and they're human. Mm-hmm. Well, you, when you describe, uh, you know, Hood's famous attack into the cornfield at the beginning of the battle, uh, you make the point that, that, you know, we see in other sources that Hood's men are very hungry and they finally got breakfast going and then they are ordered into battle and they're really mad. And I think you quote a, a either a Korean or World War II source of how when soldiers are deprived of uh, everything at some point, they be they become very effective soldiers temporarily because they're so angry. Yeah. Uh, and the the fact that it, what stood out for me as I was reading that was was your use of a soldier from a 20th century war to make a point about these Civil War soldiers, which implicitly makes the point we're discussing right now, that these guys are not altogether that different. Well, I want to ask about, actually let you talk about a couple specific points in the battle, but we need to take another short break first. Sure. So we will come back in just a moment. We're talking tonight with D. Scott Hartwig. He's the author of I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam, and the End of the Maryland Campaign. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with D. Scott Hartwig, author of I Dread the Thought of the Place, The Battle of Antietam, and the End of the Maryland Campaign. This is uh, this book just came out. Uh, we're in the year 2023 as we talk tonight, and uh, it's a, a recent book. Uh, I'm looking at a copy that belongs to our university library. I had 
months ago, maybe a year ago, put in a request that they buy it as soon as it came out so that students would have a chance to look at it. But during the last break, I went onto Amazon and ordered my own copy, so I will have one, using the Civil War Book Fund, uh, Book and Bourbon Fund, Civil War Talk Radio Fund, which listeners are free to contribute to at impedimentsofwar.org. And normally when I've read the library copy, I don't need my own, but this one I need my own. Um, and I'm looking forward to having it on the shelf. Uh, one of the many virtues of this book are brilliant maps, uh, almost goes without saying brilliant maps is followed by the name Hal Jesperson who, who did the maps uh, they really add to, to the narrative and, and show very clearly what you're talking about uh, Scott what I wanted to ask you about did, did, some weeks when I most weeks when I have a book on the show I'll, I'll read the book then I'll ask more or less sequential questions we'll often go through chapter by chapter depending on the type of book with you know close to a thousand pages we're not doing that tonight uh, let me ask you instead, rather than you know, try to pick out every story in the book, we, we, we don't have time, um, were there things that you found in the research that, that surprised you that went against the, the things we think we already know about Antietam? Well, like I told some people uh, at a talk I gave this past week, that there was something in every chapter that I wrote that I didn't know, or I learned something, or it surprised mm -hmm. me. So there, there was a great deal in the course of the book. Um, a couple of stories that I'll that I'll relate. One had to do with it. one of the big one of the big surprises I would say for me was um, the chapter on the Middle Bridge. So in the afternoon, yeah. actually late morning of September seventeenth, George McClellan, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, ordered his cavalry, most of his cavalry and his horse artillery to cross the middle bridge and make a demonstration against the Confederate center, which was based upon a very strong position known as Cemetery Hill. And just north of Cemetery Hill was a ridge, which I call Cemetery Ridge. Uh, it sounds like Gettysburg, I know, but it is Cemetery <laughs> Hill in Antietam. And it's just as natural to call the other ridge Cemetery Ridge. Very strong position occupied by Confederate artillery and some infantry up there. And um, the I thought the chapter was going to be, you know, compared to the other chapters on Antietam, that it was going to be relatively dull compared to the others. Relatively dull compared <laughs> to the others. And what I ended up finding was that it was an incredibly fascinating story. So... I tried in each chapter to either have the chapter revolve around someone, like John Bell Hood became kind of a central figure of one chapter, Joseph Mansfield mm -hmm. was a central figure, so on, uh, or it might be a unit. And in this particular case, there was the United States regulars, because I mm -hmm. thought, well, I want to do some research about the regulars, because ultimately what happened was the cavalry crosses the creek, they come under artillery fire, they can't do anything. Most of the cavalry don't even have carbines. Those who do have carbines, their carbines don't have the range to engage the Confederate skirmishers. So the horse artillery is taking all this fire and the horse artillery commanders are like, hey, you gotta get some infantry over here. So ultimately they appealed to the fifth corps and the fifth corps very grudgingly sent some US regular troops across the creek to protect the horse artillery. That was their mission, go over, and keep the Confederate skirmishers at arm's length or rifle's length and uh, keep them engaged. 
So um, the regulars, I, 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 I need to know more about them. I knew some things about the regulars, but I there was a lot I learned when I worked on this chapter in the way, well, a great statement was there was this officer in early 1862. He had, um, they had done a bunch of recruiting for the regulars and he had all these new volunteers for the regular army and he was bringing them into a camp that was near Washington, D.C. And he reported into this legendary officer in the regulars who uh, his name was, um, I forget his first name. His last name was Buchanan, but everybody who had the name Buchanan in the regular army always was called Buck. So he was Buck Buchanan, right? That was his, that was his nickname. And uh, he, this officer comes in, he reports into Buck Buchanan. He says, um, sir, I, I brought all of these uh, troops to, uh, to the college, you know, I brought all these guys and these new recruits. And Buchanan walks out and he looks out at these men and he goes, they look like volunteers. And the other officer goes, well, sir, that, that's what they are. And Buchanan goes, I'll make them regulars. That's a really telling story because that is what they did. So the regulars received and some volunteer units in the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia got this type of training because their officers had been regular Army officers and they understood how to do this. But the U.S. regulars um, received, I would say, far superior training to the average volunteer soldier in marksmanship, in discipline, and in fighting and skirmishers. They were very good at those three things. And... Their leadership was better than most volunteer units. And the reason their leadership was better is most of the leaders in U.S. regular Army infantry regiments weren't grizzled veterans who had fought out in the Western Plains against the Native Americans. They were actually people who had been commissioned directly from civilian life in 1861 and 62 when they expanded the regular Army. because they, they greatly expanded the size of the regular Army by adding a bunch of new infantry regiments and uh, some cavalry regiments and artillery batteries. And to fill that up, they had to go compete with the volunteer service and get volunteers to go into the regular army. But the difference was the way they were trained and the officers received special training. So at the middle bridge, eventually uh, the division commander of the infantry division contained all the U.S. regulars, regular infantry in the Army of the Potomac his name is George Sykes, a very, very cautious conservative commander. He starts sending some more reinforcements across because they need more men across the creek to really protect the artillery batteries. And ultimately, he sends across the creek the 4th U.S. Infantry, which is commanded by a man named Captain Hiram Dreyer. And Dreyer was somebody I'd heard of Dreyer before. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't think he'd probably done anything all that. Uh, special in the battle. They just done some skirmishing down, you know, across the middle bridge. What I learned was Dreyer was a remarkable officer and he understood how to get the best out of his men at the least cost in casualties. So what he proceeds to do, he has his orders. He, know what, he knows what his mission is. His mission is to protect the artillery. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to kind of you know, take a liberal view of what those orders are. And he starts pushing his skirmishers forward. He keeps some of his infantry back formed in a line of battle, which is a, a greater base of fire. But 
the real fighting is going to be done by skirmishers. So what's smart about that? Well, the Confederate artillery don't really have a target. And he knows his skirmishers are better marksmen and better at skirmishing than the Confederates that he's facing. And that's true because he proceeds to start to push these men back and gain ground. And ultimately, his uh, some of his regulars get all the way up onto Cemetery Ridge. They completely clear the ridge of all the Confederate artillery, all the Confederate infantry. And they probably would have cleared Cemetery Hill as well. But George Sykes sees his infantry way out there, almost up on on top of Cemetery Hill, and they're on Cemetery Ridge, and he's furious. So what George Sykes sees is not an opportunity. What George Sykes sees is Dreyer may have just led his beloved regulars to destruction because Sykes is convinced there's a big Confederate force hidden behind the hill in the town of Sharpsburg that is going to come counterattacking out and destroy them. So he sends these uh, explicit orders to Dreyer to withdraw at once. And um, Dreyer's, yeah, forced I'm, I'm, Dreyer's forced I'm, to withdraw. I'm looking at, at a map of this in your book, and you know, Dreyer's guys are essentially looking down on the town of Sharpsburg. Um, they're, they've practically broken through the center of Lee's line. Uh, you have an interesting discussion in the same chapter about the rest of Fifth Corps, uh, Fitz John Porter's men, uh, not being committed in the, the famous quote, uh, allegedly spoken by Porter that uh, this is the last reserve of the last army of the Republic and yeah. McClellan decides, okay, better not commit them. Um, then you have some discussion about, uh, you know, where did that actually come from and, and uh, uh, should we take that seriously? There are, there are so many interesting moments like that uh, throughout this book. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I like to take on these um, because you know, sometimes an account like that is the soldier did witness something, mm-hmm. but uh, people allowed the memory of other things that, that were written after the battle to intervene in their memory of what they had actually experienced and seen, mm-hmm. and then to make claims such as is made about Fitzjohn Porter that he says to McClellan, you know, I command the last army or the last last reserve of the last army of, of the Republic. And, you know, McClellan stands down and decides not to say it. It never happened. It never happened. Right. And, um, but, but, but your description of Dreyer's brigade advance shows how, how thin the Confederate line was. Had there been, had somebody sent fifth Corps forward, you very well yeah, sort of had a different outcome. It's a good, it's a good example of, um, you know, and I and I spend some time in the book examining this. Is that I'm not saying it's easy. I think it's extremely difficult to be a good general and to sense when the enemy is weak. Mm-hmm. But that's your job as a commanding general. If you're George McClellan or you're uh, Napoleon Bonaparte or the Duke of Wellington, your job is to sense where the enemy might be vulnerable and when to strike. And all the evidence that you could see in what Dreyer was doing is that the enemy was weak there. And of course, that's what Dreyer thought. That's what Dreyer kept pushing, because he sensed that they were weak. If they weren't weak, they would never have allowed him to gain the ground that he did. <laughs> but Sykes represents that, that part of the army that had it in their mind that the Confederate army had superior numbers, and it was only a matter of time before they launched this big counterattack 
and the army might face a catastrophe. So um, that was one of the, the drawbacks to the, uh, to the command in the Army of the Potomac in the battle. And just so listeners don't think it's all about the Army of the Potomac, you also talk about weaknesses in the, uh, the Confederate command structure. You know, Stonewall Jackson is, is surprisingly not not present uh, during the battle. We don't have the same number of stories about him. Uh, you, you talk about a number of issues on that side. Um, yeah, very few people um, mention, very few veterans mention seeing Jackson or getting any orders from Jackson. He was there. I mean, he almost mm-hmm. got killed. He almost got killed. An artillery shell landed right at the feet of Stonewall Jackson and Lafayette McClaws' horses. And it failed to explode, and it mm. did wound a, a staff officer with him. But yeah, the Confederate Army. One of their problems was they had a very um, porous, or or a fluid type of army organization at that period of the war. Now Lee completely reorganized the army after the Battle of Antietam, and I think in response to some of the problems they had in the battle. But you had literally moments in the battle, like John Bell Hood is negotiating, literally negotiating with D.H. Hill to try and get some reinforcements up to uh, the left flank of the army. And, yeah, that's the kind of thing where you think somebody should be giving that order, not, yes. not to subordinates negotiating. Yes. We are nearly out of time, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but let me ask, having completed these two wonderful large volumes on the Antietam campaign, uh, do you have a, a new project ahead? Yeah, I mean, I may start a, uh, a book related to, well, a book on Gettysburg, not anything like this. It would be more mm-hmm. of a book that would look at um, many of the myths and how mm. they have shaped our memory of Gettysburg and what is the origin of some of these myths and what is what really, so this, the, the shoe myth, the Barlow Gordon incident, the, the Lee came North to feed his army. Some of these things, I thought it would be, that would be an interesting uh, subject. It's something that I know about since, and it's something I found people were often very interested in who visited Gettysburg. And I know our listeners would be interested in that as well. Uh, there, as I said, there's a fair amount of that in this book, uh, along with with much thick description of the battles, evaluation of the leaders, many other things. The book is called "I Dread the Thought of the Place: The Battle of Antietam and the End of the Maryland Campaign." Listeners, you will want to avail yourselves of a copy of this book. It's written by our guest tonight, D. Scott Hartwig. Scott, thanks very much for coming on Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.